All right, I think we are ready to begin. We have Deuteronomy chapter 7 this evening, a, a wonderful chapter, enjoying it as I was studying it today. Uh, it's continually, Moses continually speaking to the second generation. And the second generation is giving a review of what the first generation already knew. But, of course, the second generation is growing into it. And tonight we'll have an outline for chapter 7. One of the, my favorite books, as you know, is Psalm. There are several passages throughout Psalm 119. One is Psalm 11, Psalm 11, Psalm 119.11, that your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And that's one of the, I guess you could say, steps for sanctification. As we continue to grow spiritually, we are able to combat uh, the sins, the lures, the lust that is there. And we also know that the Word of God, the more we study the Word of God in Psalm 119.105, is that your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. These are wonderful passages that we should have in our kit, we could say our kit bag, so we can use them to encourage ourselves every day. Let's take a few seconds, closing our eyes, bowing our heads for our own personal spiritual preparation, confession of sins, and also relaxing, uh, focusing on uh, the text of Scripture this evening. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that we have the book of Deuteronomy. We're thankful for what we've studied so far. We pray as we begin chapter 7 this evening that we'll understand what Moses is trying to communicate to the second generation, what he's reminding them of what you have already done for them and giving them promises and even warns that obedience, how important obedience is. We ask for your continued provision for us as we study this tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Last week, I went over a couple of these outlines, and I'll just give them all the points here so you can see them. We have a prologue, chapter 1, which we've studied, 1 through 5. We have a review of Israel's history from chapter 1, verse 6, to chapter 4, verse 43. Thirdly, we have the law, the promises, and the covenant community. Chapter 4, 44, through chapter 11, 32. And that's where we are right now. We're in chapter 7. Hopefully we'll be able to move right into chapter 8 and 9. These are important to us because these are the principles that Moses is communicating to them as he has learned it from God. Point four, the development of the covenant fellowship. Chapter 12, 1 through 26, 19. The covenant renewal. This is where Moses tells the the Israelites, that they will need to review the covenant. And it's a, a renewal that they'll, that he will review for them in chapters 27, 1 through chapter 30, 20. The last acts of Moses is the point here, 7, chapter 31, 1 through 33, 29, and then the epilogue, which is 
0.7. The previous one was 0.6. So this is 0.7, the epilogue, Moses' death, Joshua's succession, and Moses' legacy in chapter 34. All right. Well, tonight we are in chapter 7. And last week I reviewed for you what we were studying in chapter 6. These were the the points that we studied. And then in chapter, or the, the last point here is holy war. And we'll see uh, why we call this holy war. The great, the points for those who may not be able to see the uh, slide, we're looking at the great commands and warnings. We are seeing those reading those, studying those in chapters 6 through 11. The command to love the Lord was in chapter 6. This was the promised blessings of obedience, the command and its importance, the warning and prosperity, and then we also studied the transmission of the covenant, and that is through the children. So tonight, Holy War, chapter 7. So here we are, a holy war in chapter 7. Tonight, hopefully, we'll be able to move along fairly quickly, but there are some very important points that need to be made as we, as we continue. So first of all, in chapter 7, we're going to see the command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. And this is going to be in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, the command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. And there's specific terminology that is used by Moses, which I'm sure he received from God, to to communicate this destruction of the inhabitants of the land. And we will also address the the love and the mercy of God is very often people would say, where is God's love and mercy here? Why are we destroying the inhabitants? And we'll discuss that. B, the basis of or the reason for the command, the command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. We'll see this in chapter 7, verses 6 through 11. We'll see the reward for obedience. In other words, they are expected to be obedient, obedient to this command, the command to remove the Canaanites that are in the land. So we have a reward for obedience. We'll see this in verses 12 through 16. And then the encouragement to holy war in chapter 7, verses 17 through 26. And what I'd like also to show you is that In chapter 8, we're going to see a warning against a spirit of independence or maybe a better way of saying it is the attitude of neglect. So in chapter 7, we're going to receive the, the instruction and the results. And then we're also going to see next week a warning against the attitude of neglect. Okay. Let me leave that slide on the screen. And let me introduce us, first of all, with a bit of an intro paragraph. And what we see here is that in keeping with the concept of the book of Deuteronomy, we have beginning very early in Deuteronomy. As a matter of fact, it's in chapter 5. We read and studied the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, we could probably say, is a loose outline of the entire book of Deuteronomy. And so we see this. We begin in chapter 7, or we continue in chapter 7, expanding on the first commandment, which states that Israel was to worship no other gods. And that's going to be one of the strong emphasis here in chapter 7. 
by annihilating the current occupants and by tearing down any vestiges of their worship, Israel would be more apt to live in obedience to that first commandment, to have no other God before before them. All right, let's read at least the first five verses in chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 1. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gergesites, the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. And we'll see the words here used for utterly destroy. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show no show mercy to them. Verse 3, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Verse 5, but thus, but thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wo- their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. And it's important for us to see this word, their wooden images. It's really the what's known as an ashtarim. There are two different types of worships here, and I'm going to discuss that when we arrive here in chapter 5. But the uh, pillars and the images, later studying of this uh, by various theologians, believe that this has a sense of being the male and the female worshiping of these gods. All right. Verse 1, when the Lord your God brings you, and this is bringing you, causing you to come. So this is the uh, emphasis. It's a hithel stem, and it means that God is the one who is truly causing this to occur. When the Lord your God causes you to come into the land, which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, and we've seen these seven nations, the Hivites, the, Ger- uh, the Gergesites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations greater. And I think the word here for greater is numerous. They are, they outnumber you and mightier. Uh, we could say here they are more powerful than you are. They have the kind of training, the weapons, and they have the ability for fighting. Verse 2, And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. The word here for destroy them is cherem. And this word uh, is translated uh, a little differently in some places. But it really has the sense of meaning to commit something to a commit to destruction. It's very often described as committing to the band, something that is banded or is decidedly committed to destruction. And this is where we get the word holy war, this devotion to God. It's committed to God, and God is the one who has decided who is going to die. And for the most part, in the holy war, God is the one who is doing the warring, the fighting. 
So it says, you shall utterly destroy them. And again, the grammar here tells us that we have one verb for cherem enforcing the other one. And so uh, in Hebrew, this means completely, utterly, uh, absolutely. So there's no doubt that this is the will of God. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show no show mercy. And this is a word that means you shall show them no pity, you shall show them no favors. So we have that the wicked Canaanites belong to God. He has said, they are mine, they are in my hand, and they are going to be executed. He has given them 400 years to change. You may remember when God was speaking with Abram in Genesis 15:13. He says, God says to Abraham that your descendants they're going to be like the stars of the sky, like the sands of the sea, but they are going to spend 400 years in Egypt. And so for 400 years, God has allowed the Canaanites the opportunity to live, we would probably say, a moral life, but also a godly life. They would be able to come to the understanding of who God is, and they did not change. So the seven nations that are mentioned here are representative of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. Six of them are in the, the nation. They were part of the, of the Canaanites. The Gergesites are more of an outsider. They probably came from the Hittites, but they are not really part of the Canaanites. The point of Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 2, is that Israel was to destroy all the nations within the borders of Canaan. And so we'll see this repeated several times as we go. Now, what I'd like to do is give the reasons. The command to destroy them totally, that is, men, women, and children, has often been thought of being unethical for what we might call a loving God. And therefore, we very often hear that, well, the God of the Old Testament was unmerciful, was a, a brutally God. But the God of the New Testament was a loving God, and that's not true. I think several points could be kept in mind concerning these people, the Canaanites. First of all, the great commands and the warnings in chapters 6 through 11, and now we have holy war. First of all, the command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. The command to destroy the Canaanites, totally. We read that in verse 1 through 2. First of all, they deserve to die for their sins. Uh, and we're going to read this in chapter 9, 4 through 5. So why does God decide to destroy the Canaanites, all of them? First of all, they deserved to die. Chapter 9, just going forward in a few pages. Chapter 9, verses 4. All right, verse 4. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you. Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. But it is because of the wickedness of these nations. In other words, they, God has brought Israel into Canaan for at least two reasons. And the first one is that they are to destroy the wickedness of the Canaanites. They're also, of course, we're going to see, they will enter because this is the land that prom- was promised to the, to the patriarchs. So they were brought in because of the wickedness of the nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Verse 5, it is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you go in to possess their land but because the wickedness of these nations, that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord spoke 
to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In other words, they are wicked. They deserve to die for their sins. Secondly, they perished. They perished in their, they persisted in their hatred or their rejection of God. And we're going to see this in verse 10 of chapter 7. Verse 10, verse 10 in chapter 7 says, And he repays them, those who hate him to their face, to destroy them. He will not be slack with, with him, meaning the Canaanites, who hates them. So we'll see that in verse 10 when we arrive. Thirdly, the Canaanites constituted a moral cancer. And we'll see this in chapter 20 in verses 17 through 18. They, in fact, were a moral cancer, uh, every one of them. And we'll see that there's a a requirement here for not only the destruction of the men, but the women and the children as well. And then two mitigating factors to this total destruction. And the two of them that I've listed, and there probably are more, is that first of all, if the children are old enough to make a a decision, then they are going to die because their decisions, God knows, is going to be one that is pagan. But if a child dying before the age of accountability, if there's a child who is going to be executed, dies prior to the age of accountability, that child will be redeemed. So uh, this is the expression of the mercy of God, or we would say uh, his love for them. And then secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ's slaughter of the wicked at the second advent will be even more severe. So these are just some points that I think are important for us to remember. So the holy war here is the destruction of uh, a cancer that was uh, in, that was found in the land of Canaan. Moreover here, there is no dichotomy between God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. I mentioned that I would address this. In both the Testaments, he is revealed as a loving and a righteous God. The command to engage in holy war, again, cherem, is, of course, not applicable today. Since the present time, God is not working through one nation to set up his kingdom on earth. And that was what God was doing at that time with Israel. You've probably heard me say several times that the nation of Israel is an example of the believer today. Therefore, Christians today should learn from this command that they should be as ruthless or aggressive with sin in their own lives, not others' lives, but their own. Israel was commanded to live a godly life. We as believers are commanded to be godly, to be honorable to God. And God wipes out that sinful nations, and we should be aggressive with removing the sin in our lives as well. All right, verse 3, 7, verse 3. Nor shall you make uh, marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their sons, nor take their daughters for your son. For they will turn, they will cause your son to be turned away from following me, to serve or to worship other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. Or I think the word here better is quickly. So God's justice is not delayed, but strikes quickly to Israel if they are going to be disobedient. Point five, or uh, verse five. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars and break down their sacred pillars and cut down their wooden images 
and burn their carved images with fire. So the command that we have here against intermarrying assumes something about human nature. Paul stated the the principle well. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? In other words, if you allow your sons to marry or daughters to be given in marriage to someone who is pagan, then you have a problem because that's going to lead not only them but others from God. Marriage to an unbelieving Canaanite meant disaster for an Israelite's faith. Moses reminds the people that the Lord's righteous sword cuts both ways. The Canaanites were being judged for their wickedness. If the Israelites joined them in wickedness, they would also join them in judgment. Therefore, everything, even the Canaanites' religious objects, which might arouse the slightest curiosity about false worship, was to be totally eradicated. And the sacred pillars were pillars were stones. They would form uh, forms of stones, and they would be worshipped. Uh, and they also had the Ashtarah poles. And it's believed that the pagan religion the male part of it was the pillars, the stone sacrificial areas. And then the Ashtarah poles was a, an example of a female goddess, Ashtarah. So these were to be destroyed completely, both the male and the female, and then also the images, the idols were to be destroyed. So we've seen the command to destroy the inhabitants of the land. And now we're going to see the basis of or the reason for the command. Verse 6. Verse 6 says, For you are a holy. And the word here for holy tells us we're to be sanctified, set aside. They were a special people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen or selected you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The phrase here, to be a special treasure, means that God treasures Israel as his people. And we as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the in the church age, we should take note of this because... We, as his, his redeemed people in the church age, are his special treasured as well. So, here in verse 6, the basis for the command to destroy the Canaanites lays in God's selection of Israel, but also it is found in his character. He simply will not allow the wickedness that was found in the Canaanites to continue to exist. The word translated to be chosen or selected, it means to be chosen for a task or a vocation. And so Israel has been chosen for the first reason is so that they will represent God to the world, to the people around them. But they're also going to be used by God to eradicate wickedness. And that's one of the, I think, one of the uh, important parts of the United States mission, devotion to God, is that we are to suppress evil around the world. So that Israel, first of all, is uh, protected. Uh, the Jews are protected. And our missionaries are uh, are protected as well. Therefore, Israel was a set-apart nation for God. He has selected them for a special use. We see that since the Canaanites were corrupting the earth and since they might endanger Israel's complete 
subordination to the will of God. They either had to change, change their uh, uh, attitudes toward God, or be eliminated. And as stated, after 400 years, they had refused to respond to God. Uh, Verse 7, the Lord did not set his love on you, nor select you, choose you, because you were more in number than the other people. For you were the least of all people. So what we read here is that Israel did not need to be numerous or powerful because they were God's servants. They were selected for a special task. And what we're going to see is that God is the one who's going to do the fighting. Verse 8, But because God loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You'll notice here when it says that because the Lord loves you and because he would keep you. This is the word that's found throughout Deuteronomy. It's shamar. It means he will not only keep them, but he will protect them. He is their guardian. The oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. The sense here of a mighty hand means that God is the one who is doing the fighting. And a redeemed. <clears throat> the word here for redeeming is pada in the Hebrew, and it means to ransom them. He ransomed them from the house of bondage, from the hand, the power of Pharaoh. Verse verse 9, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps, again, Shamar. He guards them. He keeps them. So he is the faithful. He is faithful the God who keeps his covenant and mercy. And the word here for mercy is probably better translated covenant faithfulness, not mercy. Because this is chesed. And it says, he keeps his covenant and mercy for a thousand generations. It's not, the sense here is not that after a thousand years, then he stops. This is a figure of speech, and it means forever. With those who love him and keep, shamar, his commandments. Verse 10, and he he repays those, he repays those who hate him. And I think a better word here is they reject him. Uh, They know there's a God, but they reject him. And it's described here by hate. If God uh, is the only God and they reject him, it falls into the category as far as God is concerned that they hate him. They have rejected him. And it says to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with them who rejects or hates him. He will repay him to his face. Uh, Here we have both Two phrases. The first one says that they reject him. He repays those who reject him to their faces. He will repay them to his face. To his face here means uh, that it's not going to be uh, questionable as to what happens. But to his face, it will happen openly and directly. And I think here may be even a better way to understand this in verse 10 is that he is repaying them for what they have completely deserved. So to his, to their face means that this is something that they deserve and it's going to come quickly. Or we could say uh, it's going to come uh, directly. Verse 11. Therefore, you shall keep, again, this is shamar, you shall keep, you shall observe the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments 
which I command you uh, today to observe them or to do them. So in verses 7 through 11, Moses meant for the Israelites to draw two conclusions. First of all, uh, from God's selection and redemption of them. Uh, they have been selected. They have been redeemed. They have been ransomed. First of all, the, lone, the, the Lord alone is God. He is able to control history. He controlled history in Egypt. He raised them as a nation, and he is bringing them into the land. Secondly, he's a faithful God. So he's not only the only God, he is a faithful God. Uh, the thousand generation is a proverbial expression, meaning endlessly or forever. Though he will never abandon his covenant of love to Israel because he's made a covenant with them. Those who are unfaithful within the nation will be judged. Therefore, each individual Israelite needs to be careful to follow his command. And this is what Moses is is communicating to them. All right. The reward for obedience. Verses 12 through 16. Verse 12. So let me read from verse 6 through 16. Verse 6. For you are a holy, you are a set-apart people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you, has selected you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor selected you, nor chose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all people. You may remember They start out with one person, and that was Abraham. And then they move to the next generation, which was Isaac. And so they start at a very limited number. And when they arrived in Egypt, there were 70 of them. And now they have grown, but they certainly are not a numerous or a powerful nation. But because the Lord loves you and because he would keep the oath, which he swore to your fathers. The Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you, ransomed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9, Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand years, in other words, forever, with those who love him and keep his commandments. I think one of the things to note there also is that he keeps his his covenant forever. But part of that covenant is obedience. And for those who are not obedient, not obedient, they will be judged. Verse 10, and he repays those who hate or who reject him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack. He will not uh, take pity on him. So he will not uh, be slack or laxed with him, the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the covenant. You shall observe it, the statutes and the judgments, which I command you today to observe them, to do them. Verse 12, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you, will guard you, will keep with you the covenant, so that he will be faithful, and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. And the mercy here, as I said before, where it's translated mercy, this is chesed, and it means covenant faithfulness. So he will keep with you the covenant, and the covenant faithfulness, which he swore to your fathers. And he will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your land, your grain and your new wine and your oil. This is the olive oil, 
that they would have, the increase, also the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land of which he chose to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay them all those who hate you, who reject you or oppose you. Verse 16. Also, you shall destroy all the people whom the Lord your God delivers, uh, delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve the gods, for that will be a snare to you. A snare, we'll see, is a bait, uh, a, a lure to them. All right, verse 12. Then it shall come to pass, because you listen. This is Shema. You listen, you hear, you obey to these judgments and keep Shamar. I love these words that Moses continues to use. And do them that the Lord your God will keep. Again, Shamar, he will keep with you the covenant and the mercy. The mercy here is the chesed is the covenant faithfulness. So he's going to keep the covenant and he will show them covenant uh, faithfulness which he swore to your fathers. So this is a covenant relationship, a covenant relationship that God has made with Israel. And as long as they are obedient, they will have a most harmonious, happy, joyful, and prosperous life. Verse 13. Let me read verses 13 through 15 again. And he will love you and bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your land, your grain, and your new wine, and your oil, the increase of your cattle, and the offspring of your flock, in the land in which he swore to your fathers to give you. In verse 13, we have really a prelude, uh, a preview of Deuteronomy 28.4. We'll see... Uh, that uh, when Israel is faithful, they will be blessed. But if they are unfaithful, we'll see at the end of Deuteronomy 28, they will be disciplined. So what we have here is obedience brought prosperity. But notice, as I said previously, the prosperity is in the land. We have several stories in the word of in the word of god as a matter of fact in the book of ruth that when you leave the land you will not receive the same type of prosperity verse 14 you shall be blessed above all the peoples there shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock so what this tells us is that god can have a hand in fertility however of course As we know, in a fallen world, God's hand is not necessarily working there. It simply means that we have uh, certain failings within our body, within the cell structure of the body that sometimes cause infertility. Verse 15, And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt which you have known. But you will lay them on all, but he will, God will lay them on all those who oppose you, who hate you. So this also tells us that God can, God can and does control disease. Now again, that doesn't mean that he always does, but it means that he can. And it was particularly true for Israel. Verse 16, also you shall destroy all the peoples whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eye shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods. Avad here. You shall not serve, nor shall you worship them. 
for that will be a snare to you. The word here for a snare is the word for bait. And I think the sense here is when you are unfaithful and you participate in the pagan rituals, then that's a bait for you to be disobedient. It's a lure to you. So the Israelites' obligation in entering the land was to destroy all the people within the borders of Canaan. If Israel would would not do so, they would become ensnared by them and their gods. So this is not what Israel wanted to do. Now, I'd like to finish this last part, the encouragement to holy war, Cherem, verses 17 through 26. All right, let me read through this, and I think I can then work my way through some uh, explanation of it. Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, and remember here, that was precisely how the first generation viewed the Canaanites. They believed that these other nations were greater than them and they would not be able to defeat them. What they were really doing is they were rejecting God's promise to them that he would fight for them. He would give them the land. So he says in verse 17, If you should say in your heart, These nations are greater than I. How can I dispossess them? Verse 18, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out, so shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. In other words, he will treat them like he did Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. I'll talk about this hornet in a moment. And that's not a type of car. We used to have a hornet. You shall not be terrified of them. For the Lord your God, the great, uh, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you, little by little. In other words, he's going to manage this. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under the heaven. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Had Israel been faithful, had they depended upon God, they would have been able to step by step, remove the pagan nations, the residue after Joshua had defeated the majority of them. So had they been able to do that, step by step, they would have been able to destroy them. Uh, It says that uh, he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. That was verse 24. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. 25. You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. In other words, uh, you're not going to need the gold, the silver. Uh, you're going to be prosper without taking Uh, the valuables that the other nations had. Verse 26. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction. And this doomed to destruction here is the uh, the harem 
meaning that you will receive the same type of devotion that God is going to give to the Canaanites. And that devotion will be, they will be destroyed. You shall utterly detest, uh, you shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, meaning the, the idols, the icons that they would encounter. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. An accursed thing is the carved images. Okay. Verse 17. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how shall I dispossess them? In other words, how shall I drive them from the land? How? Well, verse 8 says, you shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember well what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. And some of them, of course, would not have been alive at that time. Some of them, who were younger than 20 years old, would still be alive. But some of them had not been alive at that time. But they had been told. They had been told by Moses. They'd been told by their parents. And so they would know how the Lord treated Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Verse 19. The great trials which your eyes saw, the signs and the wonders, the mighty hand, and the word here for mighty hand means the power, the power of God, and the outstretched arm. The outstretched arm has the sense of God's ability, his capability. He can reach out and accomplish his will. But which the Lord your God brought you out, caused you to bring out, So shall the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. You're afraid of these people, but you need not be afraid of them. And you still may be anxious as we cross into uh, the promised land. But God is the one who will defeat the Canaanites. Verse 20, verse 20, 21 and 22. Moreover. The Lord your God will send the hornets among them until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. Uh, The phrase here, and we've discussed the sense of God sending the hornets. I think that that was simply a figure of speech for fear. But here, Moses uses uh, the word hornet, a swarm of hornets, that could cause fear and cause people to run, to flee. And so I think that's how it's used here. There will be fear uh, among the Canaanites and they will flee. Verse 21, you shall not be terrified of them for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God is among you. He is with them. Uh, Who is able to overcome this God? Verse 22, And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you. Little by little, you will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. We've studied this previously. Uh, Apparently, there were a lot of wild animals in that area. And had they destroyed all of the Canaanites, had Joshua destroyed all of the Canaanites, there would have been a lot of land that had that was not occupied. And uh, being occupied, uh, some of the more ferocious animals could be devastating to them. And so the Lord says, you'll not cheer, the, uh, not remove them immediately. Otherwise, the beasts of the field would be too numerous for you. And so this is God managing nature, the inhabitants that were there. Verse 23, but the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, the Canaanites, and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. So God here promises victory. He will be the one who will inflict the defeat. Verse 24, 
and he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will destroy their name from under heaven. In other words, the uh, nations would be destroyed to the point that they will be forgotten in history. No one shall be able to stand against you until you have destroyed them. Had Israel been faithful, they would have been able to completely eradicate the pagan uh, nations that were there. We know later that that's not the case. Verse 25, you shall burn the carved images. You know, this is, I think, an interesting point, and I'll make it here as soon as I finish this. You shall burn the carved images of their God with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared, lest you be lured by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. Apparently, apparently the images, the idols, uh, today we sometimes describe them as icons. They could be exceedingly attractive to Israel. And it might be because they saw so many gods and so many idols in Egypt. There had been hundreds of gods and many of them were probably very attractive. They probably had seen many beautiful ones in Egypt. So Moses makes it a specific point to destroy the idols. He knew they would be a snare for Israel. And we must learn to remove distractions as well. Um, they, we, there are many distractions in our lives that distract us from God and our godly lives, our spiritual lives. And when we encounter them, we can't compromise with them. We must remove them from our lives. And I think that's a lesson we can learn here. Verse 26. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house. When you know something is evil, when you know something is pagan, you should not allow it to be part of your life. Don't bring it into your house, I think, is also another way of saying allowing it to be part of your life. Lest you be doomed to destruction. And this is our word for harem. It means to be voted, devoted to destruction. So lest you be, be doomed to destruction like it. You're going to destruct it, uh, destroy it. And if you do not destroy it, then it will fall to you. You shall utterly detest it. In other words, you shall have an attitude towards it that is detestable and utterly abhor it. Uh, the word here for abhor it means that it is so objectionable that you will not be able to keep it in your presence. For it is an accursed thing. In other words, another uh, the accursed thing here, it belongs to God. It should not be part of your life. So the Israelites here could be assured of this victory if only they had the faith to begin the battle and then, and then afterwards to destroy the idols and the, the peoples and the idols that were left behind. Otherwise, the Israelites would find themselves trapped by idolatry and they would become the objects of the Lord's holy war. So what we see in this last part is that Israel was to devote the Canaanites and their religious items to God and destroy them. Because if they did not, then they would become the objects of God's holy war. The Canaanites' idols, some of them suggesting of sexual perversion, were detestable to God. So his people were to detest them also. For the images were designated for destruction. If we do not remove evil items from our lives, we will find ourselves being lured, snared by them. 
And that's what a, a holy life is designed to do. It's to remove the lures, uh, the snares that cause us to sin. That and, though, and that kind of an activity is not honoring to God and it certainly is not pleasing to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for this chapter. We covered it rather quickly. But Father, we have a sense of what it's teaching. And that is, you have provided for us a life that honors you. It is a godly world, a godly uh, way of life. And when we allow things that are sinful or evil in our lives, it distracts us from our devotion to you. Father, help us as we study the word of God to understand what is evil and what needs to be removed from our lives so that, Father, we honor you and not only honor you, but that we will then receive the prosperity that you have provided for us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.